0: Um, yeah, as Joe mentioned, he asked me to do this in November, um, and it's, uh, it's hard to get around the fact that when you get asked like that, or even just to do this, that, that there's a certain element of it being a referendum, you know, uh, like almost you know, who's going to show up, and are they going to show up again, anytime you have to sort of do an encore performance, and I thought that was kind of funny, but nobody laughed, but oh well. Um, just never know, but it's good to see everybody. Um, as I was telling Rick on the way in, uh, somewhat new material. I've never really chased this thread before. Um, it kind of floats around some of the thoughts that I have a lot, but but uh, I don't really know how I stumbled on this idea of, of being bored. It was Carol Williams, my assistant, um, just as I was coming out here. She said, I saw your title, and it was going to be funny. Um I thought, well I didn't really mean for it to be funny per se but then also realized that you know stand up and and and, and talk you know playing about 30 35 minutes on the topic of boredom which is a little bit dangerous so I was like yeah I hope I hope it's not like a exhibit a that comes out or something like that <laughs> but we'll see it is on, on boredom it's not something the Bible talks about explicitly but it's something of course we all know and I think it's it's uh, it's something that a lot of men really struggle with just even anticipating this talk a few people um, talk to me about it. just thing with the title and what it what it could be. Trying to see what the direction is, and, and just the idea of being in a rut. That life is a treadmill and it just keeps on going. Sort of a groundhog day existence. Put one foot in front of the other. Put the other foot down, down, down. And, you know, it just keeps going and going and going and going. Um, and that's hard. It's hard in a church. It's hard in the liturgical church. That's a that's a that's the a framework that a lot of us come from. A church like the Advent where the the liturgy, which is its strength, um, uh, is also perceived by a lot of folks, especially from the outside in, I think, um, as being boring. I mean, you do the same thing every week, week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out. You know, it's the same prayers that go through. And so all this was sort of this amalgamation of some ideas that were going through my head. But, but of course, a little bit of AV to try to make it where it's not so boring. Um, the idea of just being bored in church, it's ingrained in culture. I mean, the Simpsons lampoon it, just this idea of church equals boredom. Um, here's a great screen grab. I mean, God bless anybody who spends any amount of time in the public eye. Um, you're going to get caught uh, doing who knows what. Um, funny little skit with uh, Rowan Atkinson. You know, the Olympics brought him back in there, and this is a funny part, just a screen grab from a place. Um not knowing where it was, uh, or, or, or church always having that sense of boredom. And then there's signs. Um, a lot of them are church signs. But just some ideas that play with boring uh, and being bored. You're not bored, you're boring. You know, I'm not going to go there, but it, it starts to get the juices flowing on what all this could mean. Churches sometimes do it. I like this approach. South Presbyterian Church Christmas Eve Communion wine, a 1986 Chateau Mouton Rothschild's Rothschild. I just thought it was a nice way to bring somebody in, rather than being so boring. Um, it's a way of church evangelism. There are better ways of getting people in the door, however. I think this is our new slogan for missions and outreach. Um, uh, Bored? Try missionary. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to repeat that too loud for the uh, for the um, uh, for the tape. I'm just going to leave that up there so everybody can sort of. Let our new idea sink in. Um, Being bored. I mean, we know this. We know what this is. Um, uh, Book of Ecclesiastes, if there's a... I'll change that. Um, uh, If there is a um, book in the Bible that probably deals with boredom more than any other, it would be Ecclesiastes. We don't know who wrote it. It's probably Solomon, but maybe it's somebody else. And just one part of it, out of Ecclesiastes 2. Um, So I became great and surpassed. All who were before me in Jerusalem, all my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was the reward for all my toil. I got all the stuff I wanted. That's the, that's the, that's the reward. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun, um, got to climb in a little bit. But he's describing being bored. I've done it all. I've visited it all. I've been every place. I checked all the websites. I uh, I climbed the highest mountains. I dove the deepest seas. You know, I raced the fastest cars. I I had the best. Way. I did it all, and it's still this hollow experience at the end. Just I did it all under the sun. It was all vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, a vapor, you know, chasing after the wind. Um, I think this describes the privilege that I have of being with a lot of guys. Um, there's a lot of us that describe our life really similarly to the uh, to the writer of Ecclesiastes. This idea of boredom um, One, I think most people thought of it this way and so I want to give it an idea sort of the, the face of boredom and just the idea of being bored uh, It's something that's out there and needs to be to whatever degree we can it seems resisted um, this idea of of boredom, It's what the church used to call sloth or acedia, the old sin, um, the seven deadly sins, and as Frank rightfully so points out, the church erred in trying to say there are seven deadly sins and the rest are all you know, All Every sin is a deadly sin. Um, but those sins can be helpful as we look at uh, the different routes that they can um, take in our lives. And one of them was identified early on, acedia, this idea of sloth, this idea of being in a rut. That life in church or with kids or even in sex or in our hobbies or whatever else that we're doing, um, that we just don't break out. Dorothy Sayers had a little bit to say about that. Dorothy Sayers was a obviously a woman um, in uh, uh, in Oxford, England, a British uh, author. She wrote a bunch of novels, mainly mysteries, but she was also a Christian essayist. Um, became friends with C. S. Lewis, and that group even visited their sort of little club that that drank beer every probably every Tuesday night. Um, at the pub over there, which was remarkable. If anybody knows anything about C.S. Lewis, that he took any input at all from a woman. But he did, and Dorothy Sayers had his respect. She said this about that old sin of, uh, of boredom or acedia. In the world, it calls itself tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. It is the accomplice of the other sins and their worst punishment. Now, out there on the pole, boredom in its full blossom. I think she gives this apt description. Um it is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing it would die for now that's a that's a horrific, despairing description, this idea of 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 boredom being described as uh, Believing in nothing. Um, And so in that nothingness, it's like, eh, the couch, you know, the the chair, work, home, doesn't really matter. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis would describe in the screw tape letters, you're in a great position for temptation here. Something as simple as, I mean, it doesn't have to be as, as fantastic as screw tape, the senior devil would say to Wormwood. It doesn't have to be cards or murder or women when something so simple as uh, the advertisements in yesterday's newspaper will do the trick. I mean, that's, that's the sin of boredom. That's the sin of acedia. That's the, that's the sin of sloth. So that's the full-on fruit. And that's really the last I'm going to say about the full-on fruit. Because it's the backside that I really want to sort of spend some time with. And that's where I've sort of you know, enjoyed these last couple of weeks and really thinking about this. But, but it has to be said, that rut um, where boredom is a sin which believes in nothing because there's nothing for which it would die. Um, that's, a, that's a problem. That's a bitter root. What's behind it? What's the backside? Um, I think this, I mean, this is where it's going to be hard for me to sort of try to put this in the words, and so the rest of my time I'm going to be trying to massage this idea. Um, it's not boredom so much. That's the thing on the front. It's the things behind. It's the things we're craving. It's the desires. It's the things that, that we want to have as we've so readily put ourselves in the position of a consumer. And filling that role um, just about, as I sat with it and thought about it, um, almost every waking moment, I'm consuming something. I think that's a description of where we are today. And it's this backside of boredom that I think is the problem. Um, what's the backside of boredom? There's a lot of words that could, I think, approach this. This, uh, this craving for excitement or stimulation or entertainment or arousal or diversion or pleasure. This is the problem. This craving behind it. This, uh, this lust. This concupiscence that's behind all of my role as a consumer, where I consume everything. Is the heart? said. I'm not going to go there. Um, It's interesting and instructive. Um, Gene Veith, who I'm going to read from just uh, in a moment, um, pointed this out. The word boredom didn't appear in the lexicon, didn't appear in dictionaries. I don't even know if it was coined until the middle of the 18th century. What was going on about then? I always look for Jason Wallace or Matt Stokes about this time because they're my go-tos in terms of of history. Um, What was going on about this time? Uh, Leisure. Um, Industrial Revolution happened. You started to have leisure. You started to have some extra time. The novel as a, uh, uh, as an entity was born, you didn't have the novel before then, like the book, the novels, and all that. You started to have a leisure class. You started to have leisure time. You started to be a consumer. You started to go to theater. You started to, um, you started to say, what do I want to do tonight? Before that, that question wasn't around. They didn't, they weren't bored. Um, uh, Gene Veith, a theologian that I read sometimes. He did. He had to say this. It's dated. It's kind of funny. It's in 1996. Um, Even something in 1996 sounds funny because he's describing a child's room, maybe his son. He said he has a room full of action figures, video games, cable TV, um, a VCR, interactive CD-ROM, virtual reality simulators, and a fully loaded computer with Internet access. That's kind of funny. Um, But it doesn't have anything to do. Um, Boredom is more than an irritation in child raising. It has been called a major spiritual problem one that is particularly characteristic in our time. Boredom is often the motivation for adultery and divorce, abuse of alcohol and drugs, and even suicide. The ancient moralist associated boredom with sloth, one of the seven deadly sins, considering a form of spiritual laziness, an ungrateful lack of interest in what he has ordained. But the ancients did not seem to be as bored as we are. The word did not even appear in the English vocabulary until the enlightenment of the 18th century, the beginning of the modern era. And then I think this is his money line. Boredom is a chronic symptom of a pleasure-obsessed age, when pleasure this is at the backside of boredom. When pleasure becomes one's number one priority, the result, ironically, is boredom. Makes me think then, especially in my role as a counselor, um, could we say then that it's fair that we're, we've got some sort of almost like an addiction working out here? Um, uh, as it's, it's uh, helpful to think of just sin being addicted to ourselves—cravatus and se, the reformers would call it—this this bent inwardness that we can't not not uh, correct. This posture, um, there is. There's this this this, uh, this need. It seems this addiction. For, uh, for change, this addiction for the innovative, this, this addiction to what is progressive or new or improved, or what's GIL 2.0. Um, is this year's team going to be different than the 2010 team? How can we compare? How can we contrast? What's happening? What's the new part? If before we were looking for love in all the wrong places, um, you know, the who was that? Johnny Lee, out of the Urban Cowboy. Else, uh, never mind. That was the first movie I think I remember. No, I think that was my first movie in a theater, and I was probably only five years old. And it tells you something. But um, if we looked for love, then now I think we're not looking for love. Where well, we are in all the wrong places. But but more than that, we're, we're calling it an experience, and we're looking for something to let me know that I'm alive. What's going to wake me up from this stupor? This uh, what's going to um, uh, let me know that I exist. What's this new experience, the event, that is going to let me uh, sort of shake out of being bored? Um, we don't go to the movies anymore. It's a cinema experience. We don't just have dinner out. It's got to be uh, extraordinary. It's got to be a culinary experience, and they're called artists. They're not called cooks. I mean, it's just everything has to be amped and big, big, really, really big, says Andrew. Um the church is not immune. Um, uh, a lot of folks, not so much here, but definitely here. Um, uh, well, church didn't do anything for me. Well, church isn't exciting. Well, it's not sort of you know, uh, it doesn't grab me like it used to. You know, this idea we're definitely in the role of consumer, consuming Pac-Man, chomp, 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 uh, uh, the gospel. That's problematic. That's a big deal. Going to get there, obviously, at the end. But trying to set the stage. Uh, look at reality TV. Um, somebody I read preparing for this, I don't know who it was, said, you know, if Martians came to the Earth and they weren't sort of the war of the world's beast, uh, but instead were sort of nerdy anthropologists kind of, you know, invaders, they'd have to be really curious if they came down and landed, and what would it be? 26.2 million homes on a night uh, where where the the latest reality TV hot pot was was going. Because what would they observe? They'd watch us watching others struggle to change. They'd watch us watching others try to transform the house or to stop an addiction or to quit hoarding or lose weight or um, or something. Uh, we can't not not do it, and we're bored with ourselves, and so we're trying to watch somebody else even fix themselves. Um, it's just getting all sort of spun in in a really strange way, where um, the same old, same old, the same old story, um, I love to tell that story uh, because, it's, uh, because it's true, but it never changes. That's on a real collision course with this, this need for the new, for the improved, um, for the worship experience that can be offered amidst all sorts of glam and, and glamour. Um, so, all this comes down to, towards what? Um, are we afraid of being bored? Um, I always just throw these out to say that, that it's not just me making these up. Michael Horton, who's known by a lot of folks here, he goes here a lot in his book, The Gospel-Driven Church. If you've if you've read that, um, uh This idea of of even being afraid, I noticed this last weekend. Maymay and my girls went to um, a camp for a mother-daughter weekend, so, you know, surprise. I had a weekend at home to myself. What did I do? And I'm asking this rhetorically to wonder what y'all would do, too. Uh, I got excited about Friday night. What did I want to do? I wanted to go home. I wanted to turn on the Braves game. And at the same time, I wanted to watch a movie on my laptop. Um, sitting there having a beer, eating leftover food. And I was as happy as a clam. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't get over what, what, how fortunate I felt by being able to do this. I put something down, it was there when I got home, you know, it was still there. Um, and it made me think, because of course I was getting into this this talk, uh, what if somebody had said, and, and you, you couldn't consume anything, you couldn't turn something on, there were no screens, no electronics, nothing else. There's a certain amount of me which would be afraid, and be like, what am I going to do? You know, I almost realize exactly what I'm saying. You know, my brain has been changed. My cravatus in se, which is the same old, same old me, it's been that way since, since, since the apple was et. Uh, but in its Guild its, its, its 2.0, uh, there's a, I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of being bored. What if I had to be home alone? You know, when the power goes out. And uh, there's a certain amount of fear that goes out. We have to be alone in the house with these what are we going to do? You know, there's fear there. How are we going to manage this? Um, we're afraid. Some ways this plays out. Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, I think we've readily taken this role as a consumer in just about anything that we do. And here's what I mean by that. Um, as everything needs to be an event, as as ordinary events now need to be experiences. Uh, I'm always in the position of judge. Um, that's always a position of a law, by the way, um, which always accuses. It's always judging. Um, I'm always trying to to measure something by the fun meter to see is this going to be enjoyable or not. Is this going to be more enjoyable or not. Um, again, that comes out of Michael Horton's book, that whole idea of the fun meter. Three areas that I think this comes out in this role of consumer especially. Um, sex, uh, work. In marriage and family, just our roles as, as, uh, as husbands, as, as brothers, as, uh, as fathers, whatever our roles might be. Um, how is this need to be a consumer, this, um, this role which I've so readily taken as a, as a consumer, how is that affecting sex? Um, we've happily moved to this role, and a lot of us have become bored and dissatisfied with sex. Why? Because, largely, uh, there's always this comparison value. Um there's always this this wondering uh of of is this what it's supposed to be? Is this good enough? Is this uh it's not looking like it does on TV. You know, the mouth is open and they both get there at the same time and it's like, wow, you know. Um there's some really good research in you know, anyway, some really good research on this and I like this phrase. It's called good enough sex. Um I think you put that in a lot of things. Why do I think this is good? You didn't know you're getting this, did you? Um Good enough sex. W- what is it talking about? It's talking about reality. And reality, um, that mark of a the theologian to be able to call a thing what it is, to call a spade a spade, uh, that's important. That's really, really important, in fact. Um, good enough sex deals with reality, and it takes us out of fantasy. And not just the fantasy, which we're going to get to in a minute with pornography, but um, just the fantasy that it's not enough. Here's some statistics on sex. Um Uh, 35 to 45 percent of the time, sexual experience is very satisfying to both. Um, This is this has been replicated by a number of researchers that I that I value pretty highly. Um, So 35 to 45 percent of the time, it's like it's like really good. They would say that's a that's a plus. That's a that's an eight, nine, or a ten. 20 to 25 percent of the time, it's better for one than the other. Typically, that's you would guess it the guy that it's better for than the uh, than the, than the wife 15 to 20 percent of the time it was okay but not remarkable and then this is this is important five to 15 percent of the time it's unsatisfying or dysfunctional it just didn't work that's a freeing word for a lot of folks in fact because they realize that wow so that means like 20 25 percent of the time for a lot of folks this is a big pool um it's not great it's not sort of tom cruise kate well i guess that's a it's a dated example now, isn't it? Um, you know, whoever is out there. It's not what we think Brangelina is doing. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's enough. It's getting by. And it's the freedom to say, well, if it wasn't good this time, next time. You know, because the, the statistics move around. So there's a freedom here. Because as we would guess with it, as you would guess, once you begin to deal with reality actually, um, what happens, what tends to happen, um, satisfaction tends to go up. When you quit comparing, and we're going to get off sex just for in a moment. Um, when you quit comparing, it starts to get better, and that's the beginnings of freedom. I'm going to circle back around to that. Remember, all this is the backside of boredom, and seeing this uh, uh, the, the benefit of dealing with sex actually. There's a movie title in that, I guess. Um, uh, second part. And we'll look at a little video here by by the, the novelist Martin Amos that was on Slate, and I think Mockingbird did this too a few weeks ago. Saw it on their, their part about pornography, and there's not a whole lot to, to add to this, and it's only 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, he calls it the problem of porn, and some, some highlights, some clips, just so you can know what's coming. Um, Martin Amis, and I didn't, I didn't know him at all, um, uh, except as a friend of Christopher Hitchens. Some of y'all have probably read his novels. He's a pretty big novelist. He's been around for three decades. Um, really highbrow. Uh, sounding um, British intellectual, he's a good friend of Christopher Hitchens. And where I knew him when he did a eulogy at Christopher Hitchens' funeral, which happened, what, six, eight months ago, something like that, he says the effect of pornography is in, and he's not a Christian at all, by the way. Um, he might be an agnostic, but he may be just sort of in Hitchens' camp. So he's making this from a very neutral, a morally neutral place. Well, the effect of pornography is incalculable and profound, and it will change the nature of sexuality from here on. I think it is a great attack on spontaneity. It, pornography, seems to determine the whole operation, um, the style of the whole operation. And since it is both humorless and misogynistic, I can't believe that's a good thing. With pornography, the distance between sex and love has widened, and pornography must set itself against significance in sex. I think I'm not going to show the clip. I think I'm just going to let that live. The backside of boredom. Is this craving and the desire for the new, for what's 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 uh, what's progressive, what's um, what's improved, what's um, uh, what's desired? Um, the backside of boredom. That's where the heart rests, and the problem is always the heart. It's always a question of the heart. The heart was not made for itself. The heart lives on the words around it. The heart identifies with the words around it. That's what makes idols everywhere. Our hearts are idol factories. They can't not not place themselves as being affected by all these words streaming from these idols. Pornography is right there. And as it's all there, it's humorless and misogynistic. I can't think that's a good thing, says someone no less than than Martin Amos. So off of that... Where else this role is consumers? Work? I'm going to move quickly here. Uh, you know, a lot of us have bought in, and I could easily give this talk. Um, that we should find uh, God's purpose in our work, and we should reach up and make it a vocation, a calling. And I do. I believe in that. But there's a backside to that, too. You know, sometimes a calling is simply show up. Um, just just make a widget and just find your purpose in, in working. Productively in the uh, in society and providing for your family and uh, and showing up and doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, it doesn't have to be exciting. It doesn't have to be enlivening. It doesn't have to be arousing. It doesn't have to be stimulating. It just has to be what it is. It's just work. It's just work. Um, marriage and family. We've bought into this idea of a con- as a consumer that. As a husband, I'm always supposed to be this, 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 and this. As a father, I've got to be this, 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 and this. As a brother, I've got to be this, this, this. We've got all of these things which we're supposed to be, and none of us can do it. None of us can do it. And so it frees it around the same way. It's the craving or the desire or what we're being told that we're supposed to be, which is often the problem. And it's to come around the backside and, uh, and begin to realize that the problem is in the desires or the cravings that maybe we're not even having, but somebody else is telling us we should have them. Um, but probably a lot of us do. Um, this role as consumer. Um, uh, there's a Bible story that I think captures it, um, captures a lot of things. I think it's one of the worst in the Bible um, because it's, it's, it seems so true. It's the story of Amnon and Tamar. If anybody remembers that story, it's in 2 Samuel. I think they're half. Siblings, Um, you know, back then there were all sorts of uh, of of men who had many wives, and so they had the same father but different mothers. Um, And uh, and Amnon wanted Tamar, and he drove her nuts. It drove him nuts. Um, Wanted her, uh, uh, and it it occupied his mind day and night until he was mad with desire for it, just lust unleashed. And he finally devised a scheme. To have her, and he raped his half sister Tamar. And then here's this, uh, this awful um, line, 2 Samuel 13 15. It says, And then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. What happened with Amnon? Um, it's this role of a consumer, where he wanted to consume his half sister and possess her and have her, and all that sort of jazz and sin and psychology. But it gets down to this. The the wanting is better than the getting. And then the getting is better than the having. The wanting is better than the getting. And the getting is better than the having. And so the problem is in the backside of boredom. It's in the desires. Because the wanting is better than the getting, and the getting is better than the having. You know, what was announced yesterday? The iPhone 5. <laughs> you know, wow, you know, as if the iPhone 4S so old, you know, so blasé. Who needs it? You know, how many of us were watching that and <coughs> eagerly anticipating? Um, well, watch the bottom line. You know, there's there's talk about this being the rescue of the economy in 2012 because the iPhone was uh, was being introduced and billions will be pumped in. But um, wanting is better than the having and the ha- and, uh, than getting and the getting is better than the having because you have it, and then the snitches come into play. That Dr. Seuss story. But I want what she's having because of the wanting, that the having is never enough. And Amnon gets that. And then he hated her because he hated himself. Um, so where does all this go? Um, the hammer of God is where it goes. Let me wrap this up. Why did Christ die for this? The great question from Spurgeon. There's a, a poem that I'm going to read from a guy named John Berryman, um, who, uh, who I don't know much about at all. I know this one poem Uh uh, called a dream song 14. He seems to be a man who was haunted by Christ because in the same series of poems he wrote, um, I think it's called 11 Addresses to the Lord. Um, doesn't look like a Christian, doesn't talk like a Christian. Um, people would be surprised that he was, but uh, but it certainly got this undertone that I think really gets the uh, the human experience. He um, as his dad committed suicide when he was 12. He followed suit I think when he was 58 or so, and he jumped off a bridge in Minneapolis into the into the Mississippi River in January. Uh, And so he was haunted his whole life by all sorts of demons. But I think he was also haunted by Christ. And why do I say that? Because of um, what I'm hearing in this short poem. It's very short. It's called um, Dream Song 14. And he says, Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns, we ourselves flash and yearn, and moreover, my mother told me as a boy, repeatedly, Ever to confess your bored means you have no inner resources. I conclude now, I have no inner resources, because I am heavy bored. Peoples bore me, literature bores me, especially great literature. Henry bores Henry bore me with his plights and gripes as bad as Achilles, who loves people and valiant art which bore me, and the tranquil hills and gin look like a drag. And somehow a dog has taken itself and its tail considerably away into the mountains or sky or sea, leaving behind me. Wag. That's a weird poem. Um, I've sat with it for now for two weeks, and so I am not expect you to climb into it, unless you're Jack Charmin, um, in the way that, that I do, or I have, and I'm only approaching it. What, what do I think's here? This conflict, this war, this dirty truth—it's written. You can't see it but on the front line. Just two sentences: life, friends is boring. Period. We must not say so. Period. So there's this tension. The dirty truth: I'm bored. I'm heavy bored. Everything bores me. Everything that I know is not supposed to bore me. All the highbrow stuff, great literature, art—you know, nature, pretty scenes—all uh, that bores me. Remember Ecclesiastes? You know, I tasted it all. There wasn't anything that I could have, that I didn't have. And the getting, it wasn't enough. The having, it certainly wasn't enough. I'm heavy bored. Um, but we must not say so. You know, you got to hold it in. There's this conflict that's been immediately created. And he comes in, and his mom, who's kind of the heavyweight coming in here, says, uh, my mother told me all the time as a boy, repeatedly, ever to confess you're bored means you have no inner resources. Well, I conclude now, I have no inner resources. That's a Christian word. There is no health in me. Um, I am a miserable offender. I have no inner resources. The backside of boredom is coming around with this hammer of God and to realize the problem is not that I'm bored. The problem is that I have no inner resources to deal with life on life's terms. The problem is my cravings, my desires, my need to... uh, how did I put it earlier? I forgot already. Um, the the wanting is better than the getting, and the getting is better than the having. That's the issue, is my desires, the wanting, which is always better than the getting. And even the getting is better than the having. I think it's the having. I think that'll make me happy. But I, it doesn't. We must not say so, my mom says. Well, I conclude now, I have no inner resources. Um... And then lost in this gin-induced dream that he seems to have. Uh, he's bored and unsatisfied and closed off to everything. And it all seems a drag, as the advertisements in yesterday's newspaper would uh, would, would wake him up. But all he's doing, uh, he's just left behind. And he says, and somehow a dog has taken his tail. You know, and it's just this weird image. You know, it doesn't mean anything, I think. It's just the dog has taken his tail. Something as, as hollow and as banal as a dog chasing his tail Seeming to disappear into the mountains or the sea or who knows what. And I'm just left behind, alone, starkly, me. Uh, leaving behind, colon, me. Wag. And a wag, in English speak, is just a, a silly boy. Just a childish boy. And that's all I am before God. The hammer of God lowers it down. Um, a little bit more from Ecclesiastes, and I'll stop. Um Ecclesiastes 1.8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, and nor is the ear filled with hearing. The getting is, we think that's going to get it, and it's not. Because I had it, the eye had it, the ear has it, the hands have it, the feet have it, and it wasn't enough. Um, it's that Turkish delight out of, a, out of Narnia that Edmund tasted, and it's, it's not enough. The more we get, the more we want. How much is enough? Um, just a little bit more. What? Well, how much is enough? You know, the obligatory U2 reference for me, as the Edge would say in his 1993 song, Numb. How much is enough? Too much is not enough. You know, this vast, consumptive appetite that I have, it'll never be filled. And so Luther, again, comes into play, uh, and he's right, he's right. He says, um, the, uh, uh, the thirst for whatever, he called it glory, but for whatever, all these desires in the backside of boring... The thirst for all that—it's not satiated by—it's—it's uh, uh, not—it's not cured by satiating it. It's cured by extinguishing it. There needs a death. That's the hammer of God that comes down on all this. So we're back here at the cross. We're back here to this place as we realize my addiction to uh, to something else, my, my addiction to progress, to the to the process, to um, to innovation, to the new, to the next iPhone, to the next life, to the next stage in my existence, to the next promotion, to the next check, to the next whatever, that at some point you got to say, stop, it's not enough, it's never going to be enough. And the word from the cross rings forth across the millennia, and Christ says, it is finished. And there's the collision with this idea that it's not exciting enough, and it's got to be new to make it more exciting, new and improved, which is a moron, an oxymoron, by the way, Um, uh, that it's new and improved. And God's saying, no, it's finished. It's the same old, same old. It's the one word that's necessary. Because Christ on the cross says it is finished, and as the realization that The backside of boredom is, in fact, the problem. It's the desires. It's the wanting. It's the concupiscence, as the old word was for it. that The law does it work, and it accuses, and it judges, and it shows me through as an x-ray, sort of lights up everything that's in my pockets and all, Um, and it damns, and it kills everything, every single thing that is not Christ. And then, as Christ willingly gave up his life for me... um, The law didn't kill Christ. Um, uh, It killed everything but Christ. Then as Christ willingly died, um, all those things that the law does kill, my wanting and my desires, because that's the only way for those desires to be satisfied, is is through the satisfaction of Christ's death. Those desires have to die. Hang with me, this is a little heavy. Um, His finished death carries with it um, all those inordinate desires. All of the the backside of boredom goes down with Christ into the grave. Um, So what's the the opportunity here? For something truly new. Because that's the the funny part. On the front side, then, is we think new and improved is the iPhone 5, but it's not new. Um, There's nothing new to it. The only new thing is when Christ came out of the grave. And that was truly New. And that's our hope. That's the only hope that we have. So in a strange way, here's somewhere this plays out. Um, what does Christ say to our boredom? You know, to all those roles that I said, To the, I feel like I'm bored with sex. I feel like I'm bored and I run to pornography or adultery or, I'm trying to think what Sayers said, or uh, 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 alcohol, drugs, you know, television, food, whatever it is. Um, to all of those, Christ says, it is finished. The desires uh, have their end in me, or better, have their end in my word, the law. To Amnon, who loved his half-sister with a, a lustful love, and then hated her with a hatred that far exceeded any of the love he had, Christ said, it is finished. And that the, uh, the complete Savior, as J.C. Ryle called Christ, the complete Savior then frees these desires um and here's where it always ends loosely and i'm going to stop here why does it end loose because i don't know how this happens because don't come to me um with your desires that's really what i say go to christ you know uh, I'll, I'll hear him i will you can call me and we'll go out and have coffee or you can come to my office or whatever else and we'll do that and we'll do that. but 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 really don't come to me go to christ um he'll actually listen and then he'll actually uh take those down to the grave that he, uh, w- w- where he was, and he'll bring them out um, in the resurrection that, 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 uh, that he lives. Go there. And he might actually change you. He might actually change things. If you're bored with being bored, uh, the, the desires are the problem. It's not the boredom. So it's not just a word of, you know, go out and, and drive your car really fast. Uh, that's the last thing that is. It's the desire that's the problem. Uh, that's got to die. Our desires have to die. Um, take it to Christ, and he might actually change you. He might actually do it. So I'm going to stop there. That's enough sort of a loose end for me to pick up in November, which is, again, a referendum. <laughs> so, um, but I appreciate the chance. So comment or thought? It's, it's late. Um, one or two minutes. Yeah? I thought you were going to take that first. My mind went through a lot of thoughts. You know, sometimes I think when I look at your topic, rather than, well, maybe he's going to talk about depression, because that's the word. I don't use boredom, but I do recognize sort of. And I find that gratitude and boredom can uncoexist. It's hard to coexist, aren't they? Yeah. What's the root of gratitude? Grace? Same root? notion that, that I can't self-will uh, or or desire Yeah. And that really the only is, is, is is in that power. Uh, the other comment yeah. I'll make is that I find that as I get older, I'd like to—I'm bored with kind of the new. I'd like to return to the old. <laughs> man, oh man, you know, it's like the new phone. I, I'd like to not have a phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fair. <laughs> fair point. Mildred, <laughs> not that that was you, Raymond. But thank you. Yeah, you're right. Let me wrap us up, and then uh, uh, I'm around for I make a comment or something. But uh, but I appreciate your listening. So I hope you weren't bored. So I'm praying, <laughs> Father, for this uh, for this day, for this time, um, give you thanks, and for this word especially, Lord. Uh, I was sort of in a new, uh, as I was in a new vein. Um, I was a little bit of trepidation there. I pray that you would correct me where I was certainly wrong. Um, And that uh, where your word was strengthened, Lord, um, where your word was, uh, where your word is, I pray that that there, in that place, it would be strengthened. So that these desires, which are not of you, um, but which proceed from us um, uh, as as an idle factory, that those desires would be recognized for what they are. And Lord, they would be killed. They would be crushed. They would be properly judged. And, uh, And that the death they die... They would die unto Christ so that the new life that we would live, we would live um, with Christ, um, would allow us to share in that resurrection. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.